Hello, 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 and welcome to another Bible Study Live. Thank you for those who've already commented or liking and are sharing. It's always a beautiful time to come before the people of God in Bible study. And so it's always great to be with the Deliverance Temple people. Uh, let's bow our heads and let's start with a word of prayer. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We appreciate you. We honor you. We thank you for another opportunity to come and to study uh, your word again to go in depth, more in depth with our Sunday service and sermon. So God, we ask that you would illuminate our thinking, our hearing, our speaking, everything that would make up this study. We ask that you would step in and make it what it needs to be. And no one's coming, tuning in uh, would be in vain. And we thank you for it in Jesus name. Amen. It is a great day to be alive. Great day to be, as the older saints would say, in the land of the living. We don't take that for granted. So uh, I wanted to kind of uh, remind us that we just came out of a seven-part kingdom series. And uh, there's something about this series that I didn't quite share with uh, you all. So when we first started the beginning of the year, the, verse, the very first sermon was called Sane Me. And the idea of that is that some people feel like in order for God to bless them, they have to have a new me. And the idea of that sermon was to talk about how God can bless you right where you are. But then we moved from there and uh, the idea came up of better, better me. So what we weren't saying is that you don't have uh, to have a better you. You should always be progressing. You should always be moving forward. But the idea is that God is so gracious, he can bless you right where you are. But what you do with that is you use that to be better. In other words, I don't have to be better for God to bless me. But since he's blessing me just where I am, I'm not going to take that for granted. And I'm actually going to grow into being better. And so we did a series of things called better. So we went from same me to better me. But after better me, I actually was going to go into the kingdom series right then. And so I was working with the scripture that uh, talked about uh, that the kingdom of God does not come with observation, but it's righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. But as I begin to study that scripture, it led me to the sermon, Better Christians. And I thought I was actually looking and preparing to go into the kingdom. And how that happened is I uh, back in September, I was in a conference and we had got conference shirts and the shirt said kingdom activation. And I was wearing that shirt to bed and I woke up and I seen it on my chest and I began to think about the kingdom and I began to work on a sermon uh, thinking in my mind that it was going to be about the kingdom, but it ended up coming out to be better Christians. So I did the better Christian thing for a while, but then I came to the kingdom later. So as we finished the kingdom series, and I, I didn't want to go back into the kingdom, the idea of better came back to me. And I'm wondering, why am I going backwards? And then it dawned on me that actually the kingdom and the better were actually connected from the start. And so having said that, I'll just uh, put this up better. And the definition of better that we were using was of a more excellent or effective type or quality. And now I'm beginning to kind of understand how they all jive together, how they're all working together. It's 
The reason why God will bless the same you is because you're part of the kingdom. You are part of the royal subjects. But from the get-go in his kingdom, he wanted to give his people dominion. But when he did it with Adam and Eve, they messed it up. So there has to be some growth in order to qualify for the royalty that you are a part of. Yes, you're in the kingdom. You're part of the kingdom. But there should always be an idea of growth in you so that you are living up to the standards of the kingdom. That you are kingdom, but you don't want to be operating like a pauper in the kingdom. You don't want to be operating like a beggar in the kingdom. You want to be operating like royalty, which is what you are. So there should always be an idea of growth or betterment, uh, expanding, expansion. So that's what the kingdom is about. So last week when we were coming out of the Resurrection Sunday, we talked about kingdom arise and how God showed me that the, uh, the kingdom is like a seed, but Jesus was that seed. And then we talked about how that seed uh, grew and how it was actually born to die and then it was dying to rise or to actually grow. So when you look at the idea of better, we're not departing from the kingdom arising. We're actually continuing it. So we're looking for the kingdom to arise in us. But in order to do that, we need to be better. We need to be willing to be better. We need to be willing to dig around that soil so that that which is planted in us has the greatest possibility of growth. The scripture says it this way. It says some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. Just used to just think those were numbers, but it's really showing the percentages of growth that you can have. There are some Christians who are in the kingdom. They're part of the kingdom. They're royalty, but they're only operating on the level of 30. But there should be a growing to 60. So you come from that level of 30 to operating in 60. Uh, Bishop Tudor Bismarck actually says it this way. He said on the 30 level, there's 30, 30, 30, 60, and 30, 100. So that at, at the level that you're on 30 and you reach the maximum potential of 30, which is 100, then you move to 60 fold. And then it's 60, 30, 60, 60, 60, 100. And then you're able to graduate into the 100 fold. And then you start off 130, 160, 100, 100. So, we may never in our lifetime get to that 100 100 where we are just at the optimum level. We may, but if we're always pushing in that direction, then what we're doing, we're always bettering ourselves and the kingdom is always advancing. The kingdom is growing. The kingdom is getting better. And so what we're talking about today, it just shows us the mindset of how we get better. And we usually get better through some level of stripping away. So when we're in the kingdom, it can be easy to be sucked into, I'm okay. I'm a part of the kingdom. I'm saved. I'm a part of the kingdom. I'm a part of bringing the kingdom to this earth. And when I take my last breath, I'm going to be in heaven, the new heaven and new earth. I don't have to do anything but just relax. That's the wrong mindset to take. The mindset should be of betterment, growth, advancement, so that we're getting every part of this royalty that God has paid so dear a price for. He was that seed that had to die. So we don't want his death, burial, and resurrection to be in vain. So we always want to be growing, not growing to uh, say, God, 
this is why I need to be blessed. No, God has chosen to bless us just like we are because he loves us. But in our response to his blessing, his love, his death, his burial, his resurrection is I want to be better. I want to grow into the place that matches what I've been given. I always use this type of analogy. If you give me a Rolls Royce, it's on another level than the Cadillac I drive. So there should be another level that I operate with now that I have this Rolls Royce. Number one, it was a gift. I didn't do anything to deserve it. It was given to me, but I can show my appreciation by how I take care of it, by what I do with it. More than likely, I would not be driving it to work like I drive my Cadillac to work. I would still be driving my Cadillac to work because I don't want to devalue the gift. I want to say, no, this is a high level gift. So I want to treat it as such. So eating fries in it probably won't happen because I'm trying to show I appreciate it. I'm trying to take care of it. I want the upkeep. I want it to be as pristine. In other words, when the next time you see me, I want to be able to take you in it and show you it's just as pristine as when you gave it to me because I value it that much. So that's the whole premise of the kingdom and betterment. So let's give us uh, some, let's actually go back and look at the definition real quick of a more excellent or effective type or quality. Let's give us some synonyms. Better uh, synonyms would be superior, finer, of higher quality, in a different class, one step ahead, preferable, recommended. I uh, spent some time on that recommended and one of the questions I ask, does, does anybody recommend you for anything, both natural and spiritually? Are you, do you come highly recommended because of the way you handle yourself, because of the level of excellence that you uh, portray? Do you come recommended or do, does your name never get brought up when, when it's thought of like, man, uh, I need someone to do uh, business for me. And you have a business in that field that they need. Does anybody ever bring up your name because of the way your business carries itself? I talked about myself and how it's been a difficult season in the sense that I told a good friend of mine that I do want more people to hear me preach, but not necessarily through funerals. I don't necessarily want to be known as the funeral preacher because that's it's taxing mentally, emotionally, spiritually. It, it's it, it's a different level. I'm still trying to wrestle with the death of my father. So that 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 that's harsh. But on the flip side, there is a level of honor to know that when people go through their grieving time, that my name is highly recommended. So even though it's difficult, I put all that to the to uh, pull that all that aside, and I do the task that I'm called to do. And I try to do it with excellence. I try to do it with honor. I try to do it the best that I can. And somehow the fact that I've done three funerals in four weeks uh, up until last Sunday shows that I am bringing something to the table that is a cut above. That's a step ahead. I'm not saying I'm better than anyone else, but if I would be blowing it, I would not be recommended again. So the question is, when you're dealing with better, are you coming highly recommended? Are you on time? 
Are you kind? Are your, is your work at a high level? Is it superior? Is it finer? All these things should be a part of us as our natural basic Christian nature. The fact that if you get them because they're Christians, they're coming with a certain level of betterment, royalty, kingdom mindedness. And that is not always the case in the kingdom. Sometimes we are bringing low level and that shouldn't be. So, uh, I underline two things, cut above, ahead of the pack, field. Those are uh, two things that I kind of wanted to key in on. So having said all that, this is what was the title. The title was simply this, it's on us. It's on us. So it's on us as Christians to be better, to be, when we come to the table, that we bring a certain level that is a cut above, that's a step ahead, And we're not in competition with people. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we are in competition to the person we were previous. I'm competition to who I was last year. I'm trying to be better. And if I continue to best myself and better myself and outdo myself by nature, I'm going to be a cut above, a step ahead of a lot of people. Not that I'm in competition with them. I'm in competition with me. But here's the truth. Most people won't do that. Most people won't stretch themselves. Most people won't do and go the extra level, take the next step. So because you're doing that, not to compete with anyone, but because you're doing that to better yourself, you're automatically going to be in front. You're automatically are going to be a leader. You're automatically going to have people looking to you because the average person won't do that because they're average. The average person is okay with average. They're okay with mediocre. If you press for excellence because God has been excellent to you, it's automatically going to put you up front. It's automatically going to put you ahead. And there's nothing wrong with that because then people are going to gravitate to you and then you're going to be able to lead them. And the goal is you'll be able to disciple other people. You'll be able to let them know the God that you serve. You'll be able to bring them into the kingdom because they're going to want to know, well, how did you accomplish this? How did you go through grief and end up here? How did you break the addiction? How did you come through the divorce? How did you get out of debt? Why is your family working? Why is your marriage working? Why are you happy and praising? And so in other words, you're using it to be a light of hope. So as we closed the uh, sermon on kingdom arise and we closed the resurrection. We went to the scripture in Isaiah 60 that said, arise, shine for your light is come and the glory of the Lord is arisen upon you. So when God got up out of the ground, that prophetic thing from way back in Isaiah, it comes in our life that we begin to shine. We're both salt and light, but the darker life gets around for people. And the more we shine, it's just going to draw people to us. And we will have a king to introduce them to. So that's the mindset. All right. So in order to uh, share this, I talked about two stories. And so we're going to start with story number one. Story number one has an airplane setting and it centers around airplane cookies. And I shared that this story is adapted from a poem called The Cookie Thief. It's very similar. I adapted it for how I wanted to tell it. But if you will go and look up and Google the cookie thief poem, you will find a a story that's uh, 
very akin to what I'm talking about, gives you the same type of understanding, but it's, it doesn't differentiate in more detail. I just adapted it for me. So we just are going to call this the airplane cookie story. All right, so here's the story in a nutshell. Two uh, men riding a plane, uh, both in first class. Usually in first class, you get served the snacks first. And so there's a bag of cookies in between. The person on the left just knew that they were his cookies. And so somewhere in the flight, he grabs them, opens them up, takes cookie out to eat it. When he does it, immediately the person to his left, I, I don't know if I said it right. This guy's on his right, on the right seat by the window. The other person is on the left. The person on his left grabs and grabs a cookie and eats a cookie. And so the man on the right is flabbergasted because obviously this guy is grabbing his cookies for what reason he does not know. He's frustrated by it, bothered by it. But he kind of thought that this is a short flight, not need to really get in an argument. So I'm just going to leave it alone. And I'm just going to grab another cookie, eat it, and just kind of relax. When he does that, the other man grabs another cookie out the bag. So now he's highly upset but decides, I'm going to show this man grace. I don't know what's going on in his life, but he's crazy to be grabbing another man's cookies that he doesn't know. And all the time, the guy who's doing the grabbing is smiling, being kind of kind about it. And so this guy is perturbed, bothered, and just like, Basically, forget it. You can keep the cookies. I'm going to kind of look out the window. You know, when you're in a plane, you're in close proximity, but you can give off that, hey, don't talk to me. Don't bother me. I'm in my own zone. You can kind of give that off. And so the other man continues to eat cookies till they're all gone. Well, on the last cookie, he breaks it in half and offers it to the man like, hey, do you do you want this cookie? And gives him a smile. And the guy was just like, mm, no, you're good. Like, yeah, you're being kind. But at the end of the day, you're eating my cookies. I don't understand how you think breaking the last one and a half is doing me a favor. But in his mind, I'm going to give him grace. I'm not going to go off. I'm just going to leave it alone. The cookies are not that important to me. So when they land, the man gets off first. The other guy gets off a little later, and this is a part that I didn't share in the story. They they were separated. Uh, I guess the first guy went a little faster and quicker down the runway to, to leave, and he was a little slow behind, moving kind of slow. But when he reached his hand into his coat pocket, he finds a full bag of cookies. And then it dawns on him that the cookies in between them were not his. They were the other man's. And so he was the actually the one in the wrong. He opened someone else's cookies and he took the first cookie out. But the man on the left, he was the one actually giving the grace. He didn't say anything about it. He didn't bother me. He just grabbed a cookie as well and smiled. And so when the other man grabbed a cookie, he just grabbed a cookie too, knowing these are actually my cookies. I don't know why this man opened my cookies, but hey, I'm willing to share. I'm willing to be kind. And then when the other man to the right was being a little distant, I don't want to talk to you, I don't want to be bothered with you. When it got to the last cookie, he broke it open saying, hey, 
Here, this is the last one. Would you would you like it? So all the time when the one man is thinking he's giving the grace, he's actually the one receiving the grace. And so that's the major moral of the story. And here's the moral. The fixing you think others need is often the fixing God is trying to bring to you. And the beauty of this story is many times as Christians, because we're trying to better ourselves, we have the assumption that it's somebody else in the wrong. And we think when we are offering grace, giving grace, many times we think that we are right. And many times it is God that is trying to show us we are the ones that need the help. So one scripture says that be careful of fixing the speck of dust in your brother's eyes when you have a big log, a big beam in your own eye. So one of the greatest ways to walk in betterment is to really focus on yourself. Stay on you because many times the biggest issues will always be in you. The enemy is normally your inner me. And so as you focus and look introspectively on you consistently, it will help you better yourself and you won't be so judgy as it relates to other people. So in order to do this, we went to a, in order to make this story make sense, we went to a, a scripture in the Bible a passage. And so we want to go there in second Samuel 12, one. Says this, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. Nathan was a prophet. Nathan was telling David a story, uh, but Nathan didn't tell David whether the story was a fictional story or a real story. But from David's vantage point within prophet coming, David more than likely was believing that this is a real story. We can tell that's how. Nathan set it up and he did that purposely. Verse two, the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, uh, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. So this was not the type of animal that they were trying to eat. Most of uh, People were raising sheep and cattle for their clothing, for their food. But this man was poor. And the fact that he had this uh, animal, it became a prized possession and became like a family pet. You see the way the story is going. It actually it, it slept with him. It would almost be like the family puppy, the family dog. And so it was very important to this poor family. When you don't have a lot, you take a lot of pleasure in smaller things. It's one of the things that's hard when you're teaching prosperity from a Christian's perspective, you don't want to get people caught up in material things because when people get caught up in material things, they take small things for granted. But when you don't have a lot and you have to rub nickels together, so to speak, and you scrap for everything you got, you take things very, very serious and materials don't mean a whole lot to you in the sense of it means a lot to you to take it for granted. It means more to you to really uh, have what you call prized possessions. And so that's what was going on with this particular young man or poor man in his family. Verse four, now a traveler came to the rich man. So we're going back to the rich man. The rich man has company, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come. So the rich man has company as a traveler, and he has 
multitude of sheep, cattle, all kinds of things that he could have taken to prepare a meal for his company. It was customary that when you have a company company that you would feed him, take care of him. And the richer you were, were, the more elaborate you were with taking care of your company, feeding your company, making sure they had a place to sleep, all, all that kind of stuff. That's just the way that ancient world was. And so Nathan tells the story that instead of taking something from himself, he has abundance. He goes to the poor man and takes his one prized possession, which shows greed, shows all kinds of things. Verse five, David burned with anger immediately against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who does this must die. He was quick to go straight to death. Now, David was a warrior. And so David operated like that. But David also was a king. So he had the authority to put someone to death. But immediately he was like, this guy needs to die because this is unjust. This shows injustice. Verse six, he must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Not only did David say this man needs to die, but before he dies, he's going to have to pay and he's going to have to pay four times because he has no pity. In other words, he's greedy. He's evil. All kinds of things are running through David's mind. And then verse seven, the A clause of the verse is simply says this. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Nathan totally turned the tables on David and said, actually, you're the man. I'm not talking about a, a real person. I am talking about a fictitious story, but I'm doing that to point to you. One of the reasons why Nathan would have done, done that, number one, was he knows David's heart. David has a good heart, and he wanted to show David something. But also, Nathan understands that David is king, and David is in a space where he has been operating outside of the will of God. So Nathan could have been put to death by telling David straight out, hey, you're acting up and you're, you, you need to get yourself in order. So Nathan used wisdom on how he brought this to his attention. Sometimes God doesn't chastise us right in our face. Sometimes he goes through different channels to bring us something because sometimes we won't listen if we brought it harshly. So he brought it through a story. But once he got the uh, response that he wanted from David, he immediately Turn and let them know you're the man, you're the issue, you're the problem. So going back to the moral of the story, many times the fixing that we think someone else needs is the fixing God wants to bring to us. And sometimes God has to go through different channels to show us we are the problem. So I had some points that we did in an A, B, and C manner. So A was this, better individuals don't want harsher punishments for others than they do for themselves because they recognize there's a possibility they might be the one on the hot seat one day. So the first thing that we know as shows that we're operating better, operating with wisdom, is that we're very careful when punishments go out. So I know a person could be wrong, but I have to be careful at the punishment I want them to get because I have to consider myself. What happens if I was to do that? So when a pastor is caught selling dope and they strip his ministry from him and he goes to jail and they throw the book at him. They give him 50 years. 
I have to be careful how I, as a pastor, like, yeah, with his old stupid, ignorant self, I don't know what he was doing. Yes, he was wrong. Yes, he shouldn't be doing that. But do I want him to get the worst? As a pastor, I have to be careful of that because what if it was me? What if I got busted in something? So in other words, you have to consider yourself. Does the person need to be judged harshly? Yes. If they've done wrong and an egregious wrong, yes, they should. But your compassion should kick in at some point. There was a story just last week where a man uh, was supposed to be sentenced to 70 years for spitting at a police. And then my thought is, should he have spit at the police? No. Is that assault? Because there are something called assault with bodily fluids. Yes. But is that beyond harsh? Yeah, it is. Is something wrong with the system that would say 70 years for that offense? Now, would I want to be spat on? No. Would I want my family to be spat on? No. But my compassion kicks in that 70 is too much. And here's the thing is you put yourself in someone else's shoes. That's what empathy is. Sympathy is one thing. But empathy is you step into someone else's shoes. So if you want harsher punishments for others than you want for yourself, then there's something wrong with the way your mind works. And you have to work on that. Better individuals don't operate like that. They understand that fair is fair and just is just. All right, let's move on. Verse eight. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. So now this is Nathan speaking for God. So now he's not using the story anymore. He's being direct and God is speaking to him. And God is saying, David, I gave you everything. And so let's look at the next verse, verse nine. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Amorites. So us Bible and biblical scholars, we know the story. David was supposed to be at war. He had taken that time off, let his people go to war. He's standing on his lattice, his balcony or whatever. He sees Bathsheba bathing. She was naked. She was beautiful. And he had her brought to him to sleep with her. Now, what we don't know is how long this went on. But at some point she ends up pregnant. She lets him know. And David devises a scheme to get rid of Uriah so that he could have Uriah's wife. And God was very upset with David because he was like, I gave you everything. Now, in my own mind, I believe because Bathsheba bared Solomon, I believe that she was going to end up with David anyhow. I believe that if David would have just waited, that there's a possibility Uriah would have died in battle anyhow. But he wanted it and he wanted it now and he wanted it in the wrong way. And so God couldn't go along with that because David just really got out of pocket. And David was a man after God's own heart, but he just he had lost his way. Now, at this time, he's not uh, battling. He's in the creature comforts of life, so to speak. He's living as a king. Things are going well. And that's one of the challenges that we have to be careful of. When we get blessed, we can get so comfortable that we lose our integrity. We lose our morals. We lose the person that made us who we were. David was so loyal. He was so full of integrity, but he got really, really relaxed. And so that's why we always have to work on ourselves because you can get so relaxed 
that you lose yourself in a moment of passion. And then many times, then you have to start trying to cover up. Well, I don't think that David wanted to kill Uriah. And we see that he didn't because he tried to cover it up, but nothing was working. So eventually he did what he did. And he paid dearly for it, for really for the rest of his life, he paid dearly for it. So let's uh, move forward because there's something else we're trying to look at. Uh, B, better individuals know it's unfair to judge others on their worst day, but turn around and only expect to themselves to be judged on their best days. Now, looking at David, we can see that the majority of his life, he's he's an excellent human being. Even after this point, he's excellent. Man after God's own heart, powerful, awesome, great things. One of my favorite people in the scripture. But he does have this block of time where he was at his worst. Now, he, he did a few other things, but this is where he was at his worst. And so it's always interesting how you judge a person on their worst day. Since we are people who are supposed to be communicating Christ's love compassionately, there has to be a way of ministering to people on their worst day. Now, Nathan did come to David through God, through the prophetic word of God, and challenged David on what he did wrong. But we don't see Nathan being more heavy-handed than what he needed to be. He told David what he needed to tell David. He spoke for God. David needed to be corrected. Now, David did humble himself and and seek forgiveness and and seek to turn things around. But Nathan could have just really hammered him, could have really, really went off and really went overboard. But you have to be careful how you judge a person on their worst day, because we all have bad days. And sometimes our bad days can turn into worse days. Our worst days can create worse seasons. Sometimes a bad decision, a one momentary decision could create a season that is worse for us. There are people sitting in prison who had lapses of judgment for a moment, for a season. They were at the wrong crowd for a little while, and then it caused them to do something horrible, and now they're paying for it for the rest of their life. Well, how we handle our prison inmates shows who we really are because yes, they did wrong. Yes, they may deserve prison, but it doesn't mean that prison should take advantage of them. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't get notes and letters. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for them. If you look at our newsletter in our prayer, we actually have pray for our prison inmates. Yes, what they done was wrong, but that was their worst day. We're trying to get people back to their best days. So how we handle them, how we judge them, shows whether we're better individuals ourselves because the scripture says that when a person is overtaken in a fault, which means that they were overpowered, they became weak. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. They became weak to the flesh. They were overtaken in the fault. It says those who are spiritual, they actually restore. They don't pounce. They don't judge. They restore. And the scripture says they restore considering themselves. Once again, it goes back to empathy. How would I want someone to handle me on my worst day. Now, here's another thought. If my worst days were exposed, if my worst moments were exposed, God is so gracious and good that oftentimes our worst days are hidden. They're covered under the blood. They're graced over. Some of us have past that are bad. 
Some of us have been with someone else's husband, someone else's wife, had seasons where things weren't right. Now we are okay. We beyond that. And people tell us how good we are, how awesome we are. But in the back of our mind, we know without God, we could slip back into any of that stuff. We know we could blow things. We know we could be an embarrassment to Deliverance Temple if something was to shine on us. And so what we do, we have empathy for people when they fall on their worst moments because we know everybody needs God's grace. And there's times where we have needed it and we're yet going to need it. So that main that mindset keeps us better. All right. Here's the next one. And this kind of just puts it all together really uh, easily. Better individuals offer to others the same level of grace they need themselves. You consider yourself and you say, I am in constant need of God's grace. So I'm going to be constantly giving God's grace. Not that I won't challenge, not that I won't stand up to people when they're wrong. But when you have a person whose heart is broken, when they know they've messed up, I don't need to just crush them. I want to give them the grace that I would want. I'm trying to restore them. I'm trying to pick them up. I'm trying to get them back on the path they need to be. I'm trying to remind them they're part of the kingdom and the kingdom needs them. So, hey, we're trying to lick their wounds. We're trying to heal their wounds. We're trying to get them back on the straight and narrow. We're trying to help them. We're not trying to crush them and dog them. We're trying to build them back up because at the end of the day, that's what I would need. That's what I would want. And better individuals think about what they would need. And they think about what it would be like to be in those shoes. And that's how they operate. I may not be hungry, but when I see someone hungry, I'm trying to remember what it's like to be hungry, what it's like to want food and not be able to get it. I may have never been in a place where I haven't been able to satisfy my hunger. So I imagine what it's like to be hungry. Imagine what it's like to be home homeless. I imagine what it's like to be divorced. Imagine what it's like to be sitting in a jail cell. Imagine what it's like to be dogged, lied on. All those things, if I haven't been through, I imagine it so that I can help that other person. I offer to others the same grace I know I need myself. So having said that, the question is, how is this a story about us because I keep saying I'm saying it's on us but I keep talking about individuals I'm not talking necessarily about us so pastor if you keep talking about bettering me bettering the individual how does that reflect on us or why would you name it it's on us and so here's the reason why it first takes better individuals to build better collectives there's no us without the individual So, yes, my focus is us, us as the church, us as the body of Christ, us as deliverance temple. I do not pastor individuals. I pastor a collective. But I know if I could work on the individual, then I'm automatically blessing the collective because when individuals become to be better, they bring their betterment to the collective. In other words, if I could work on myself being better as a pastor as a husband, as a father, when I come to pastor the collective, I'm bringing the best version of myself. When you come as a member and you're already working on yourself, then you bring the best version of yourself. And then what happens is the collective, us, we become better because we're becoming better individuals. And that's the only way you can do it. When you come to the collective worrying about somebody else, you actually hurt the collective. When you hear scriptures and like, ooh, I know that's 
what sister so-and-so needs. Well, you shouldn't be worrying about what sister so-and-so needs. You need to be worrying about what you need. How can I apply that to my life? Because if I can apply that to my life and be better, then if sister so-and-so does need it, then maybe I can help and disciple her. I can do life with her so that she can become better for all of us. So it starts with the individual. One of the reasons why I wanted to do less church, less actual stuff in the building, because growing up, we just church, 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 church. And many times the family suffered. And I realized that I can build a better church if I built stronger families. In order to build stronger families, I can't have us all in the building forever. So when I first took over, I stopped Friday night service after a while. And then we created what we called family night. In other words, don't come to church but actually do something with your family. I'm not sure how many people actually took advantage of it, but it was something I did because I realized in order to build a strong church, I have to have strong families. I can't have strong families if I always have them in the church where well, we got a revival on Friday. We got Friday night service. No, go to your child's game. Go out to eat. In other words, build a strong family union. And then when that family comes to church, then we ha- we build a stronger church. And so I start instituting sabbaticals. We're not going to come to church this Sunday. We're going to get away. We're not going to church. We're going. And some people are like, well, I don't I don't know if I agree with that. Well, I'm not trying to build a stronger church. I'm trying to build stronger people. If I build stronger people, when they come to the church, I'm going to have a stronger church. And so that's the goal. So when I say it's on us, I'm talking about the church. It is on us as the collective But if we start with the individual, we're going to have the collective. But that led me right into story number two. So story number two, and here's the two uh, pictures that we use for story number two. Number one was an empty church, Um, beautiful church, but empty. I didn't bring a whole lot of attention to it on Sunday, but I will try to bring a little bit of attention to it on why I have a picture of an empty church. All right. And then we have a full bar. So we're going from empty church to a full bar. And then I call this the church bar story. And so an African pastor was telling uh, this story. And so the story goes that there was a man in church and he'd been coming to church about three years, coming to church with his wife. His wife had been to church longer, invited him. He finally comes. He gives his life to the Lord. Things are going well. He is enjoying, enjoying church. He's in church and his phone rings loudly interrupting and disrupting the flow of church in the middle of the sermon. The preacher stops and rebukes him very harshly. Like you've got no business with your phone on in church. What is wrong with you? You're messing up with the anointing. Lives are at stake, blah, blah, blah. Really went in on him. And all the people in the church was looking at him like, you know better. Like, what are you you doing? So it was probably a very heavy handed church with an authoritarian, leader. And this guy happened to be on the end of it that day because of a mistake he made of leaving his phone on and it makes a, a big distraction. So after that, he leaves out of church. Nobody shakes his hand. Nobody hugs him. They're just kind of like giving him the cold shoulder. He goes out of church. He's with his wife in the car with his wife and his wife goes in on him like you embarrassed me. Blah, blah, blah. The pastor had to stop his sermon. Blah, blah, blah. It was just a bad Sunday for him, he was embarrassed, but nobody made him feel much better about it. What people d- didn't know about him is that he used to be an alcoholic, and there is a bar about a block from his house, but he wouldn't go to the bar. He would 
since he'd be coming to church and had gotten clean and sober, he wouldn't go to the bar. He got his love from the church. But he was so embarrassed and so dejected from that experience that he goes on that Sunday afternoon to have a drink. Hasn't had a drink in three years. He gets a, a drink. As he's bringing the drink to his mouth, he drops the glass. The drink splatters over people, splatters on the women's dresses, splatters on men's shirts. And he really feels awful. I can't do anything right at church. Here I am at the bar trying to drink, and I can't even do that. But the people in the bar was like, oh, man, don't worry about that. Hey, it happens. You know, you ain't the first person to spill a drink. Hey, pour him another drink. I'm going to pay for it. It's all good. They seen how he felt bad, and they were just rallying around him. And then the pastor, the African pastor, was telling the story. He asked this question. He said, which place was the actual church? The real church or the bar, which treated the man more like the church. And so here's the moral of that story. It should be pretty clear, but here's the moral too. Shame on us, the church, if more loving grace is found outside of us than is found among us. In that story, there were two mistakes that happened. One mistake was he left his phone on. The other mistake is he dropped the drink. But in the bar, his mistake was treated as nothing, and he was treated as, oh, man, it's okay. Everybody does that. It's okay. But in the church, he was scolded. He was treated inhumane. Now, of course, we're kind of blowing the story out of proportion a little bit. But the idea is that some people go through that and they find more love outside of the church than they do in the church. So that's why we have to work on ourselves, specifically deliverance simple. If we're going to be a church of love and a church of deliverance, when people come here, they're not going to have it all together. They're going to need deliverance. And so we're going to have to be real embracing and real loving. That's going to have to be the culture of who we are, the core of who we are. And then on Sunday, I talked about the story of how my father and uh, Melvin Kelly met and told the story. And so I won't go into that story, but there was something that I didn't add that my dad had said that he said that when he dropped him back off at the low end, he wasn't sure he had offered to get him a hotel. And Melvin said, no. Just uh, uh, leave me here. And my dad was like, well, do you have a place to stay? He's like, no, I'm homeless right now, but you've done enough for me. Just drop me off here. And so he did drop him off. And he said when he shut the door, when Melvin shut the door, the Lord spoke to him and said that there is more love out here than it is in some of my churches. That's where I stopped on Sunday. But I was reminded that that was not the end of what God said. What God had actually said, the full thing God said to my father is that, there's more love out here than it is in some of my churches because someone will take him in. And he was letting my dad know it was okay to drop him off, even though it was the low end, the Muncieana homes, the place that people think was the, the rough place, the ghetto. But God was telling him that somebody was going to take Melvin in. Somebody would have let him have a place to sleep that night. Somebody would have taken him in. He said, that's not all churches, but some of my churches don't have enough love to actually receive people in. And it actually shifted my father's ministry. He was always out, but he really pushed even harder. And then he shifted more toward a grace and love message, which is why I'm walking in that legacy. We shifted from legalism and you got to do this, you got to do that to really focusing on showing people love because that's really what is needed. So Here's the points that we came under this story. 
uh, the safest place for the brokenhearted should be in the hospital we call the church. That's the goal. Anything less is uncivilized. And the truth of the matter is there are people that they feel the least comfortable in the church. Now, some of it is conviction. Sometimes the reason why people don't feel comfortable is conviction. But there is something else going on at play. Sometimes when people can get past the conviction and they feel like, okay, I want to come, it is the people that make them feel less than. The people are sometimes so so judgy, so quick to point out everything that is they're doing wrong. And there should be a culture of embracing. And there are a lot of churches who are doing much better at this, but there are still some Christians who are just so harsh and judgy that the people in the world just don't feel what they should feel. And what we're saying is it's on us, specifically delivers them to make sure we are doing opposite of that. Because if we are not, we're totally going opposite of the vision. We can't be living our vision every day, which spells love and ends with the the major goal, the four, four stakes. But the major stake is communicating Christ's love compassionately. If people are not feeling Christ's love from us in a way that's compassionate and empathetic, we are failing at the vision and we are destroying the legacy of Bishop H. Royce Mitchell. And Pastor Andre Mitchell needs to close up shop because I'm not doing what I was tasked to do, which was to continue the legacy. And so I believe we are doing it, but God wouldn't give me this message right after the kingdom series if he doesn't want us to take it up a notch. So we have to remember that is the goal. And we can't be so self-centered, so success-centered that we forget that we're supposed to be reaching people and touching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus Christ, which means this, I've already paid the price for your sins, all your hiccups, your issues your baggage bring them to me we are going to work it out and when you die you will have a place with me afterwards so come as you are don't leave as you are but come as you are you and I and I'm not talking about you and Andre Mitchell or you and Deliver Simple members but you and God are going to have a relationship and that's going to turn you into the person you need to be once you begin to get in that path then you turn around and you help someone else. That is the simple nutshell of the gospel. We've complicated it with a bunch of other stuff. Now, the gospel is deeper than that, but that starts the simple path. If you're in your driveway and you're parked facing the opposite way of the street, there's only one way to get to the street. You got to put the car in reverse. It's just that that simple. You have to get in the car and put a reverse. Is driving more complicated than that? Yes, it is. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of things that go into it. But the most simplest thing to do to get you on the road and get you out of the driveway, you got to get the car in reverse first. Get to the street. So let's not forget the basics of the gospel. And so that's what we need. And so I decided to go here for my next few points. These are something I took. They are not my words. I took someone else's words. But here was this, which most people don't remember or recognize, but they will recognize it later as we get to point C. B says this, Lord, we don't need another mountain. This is not biblical. This is secular. Lord, we don't need another mountain. There are enough. There are mountains and hillsides enough to climb. There are oceans and rivers enough to cross, enough to last until the end of time. This is going to make it sound more uh, remember, memorable to us. C, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little love. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just for some, but for everyone. So this is a very famous song that we've sung. What the world needs now 
love more love. But I want to pick up the actual verse. The actual verse is a cry to the Lord. Listen, we, we've been through enough. We've got enough junk in our life. All we need is love. And God is like, hey, I got the answer for you. I put love in my people and I let my people come and gather. I told my people to gather so there'll be a collective of love. And so what the world needs, I already got it. And so I'm going to have them offer you what the world needs. And what that'll help do, it'll help save the world because he died for the world. He didn't just die for the people who believed him. He died for the world. So when we give the world what they need, which is love, then they will realize, oh, he's the answer. So it's like us having... We, it's like us having the answer key to the test and we're making people jump through hoops to get it. They're getting ready to fail. They're getting ready to flunk. They're getting ready to be flunked off the team. And we got all the answers. And the teacher says, oh, by the way, you can you can give them the answer key. This is an open book test. You can go ahead and give them the answers. And we're like, mm, nah, I don't like the way they I don't want them, them to join my group before they get the answers. Well, they got too many test tattoos or they're gay. No, but you have the answer. Well, let's worry about all that other stuff later. The answer is love. And so that's the focus. we got to get back to that. So here's the verses to go with this. First John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So here's another trick that the Lord does. He tells us, once we come to him, to gather. He wants us to gather. He made the church gather. They come, he told them to come together. But here's the trick. It teaches us to learn how to love each other. So he pours his love on us. Then we gather with other believers. And when you're in a good church, the people in church actually feel like your family. Sometimes you you feel more blood than them than your actual blood because God is teaching us. We learn amongst each other. But the goal is not just to keep in there and make that just like a country club. It's to take that out to the world. When you're on your job, in the schools, actually with your real family, that you share that love, that love that you get amongst the brotherhood. You share it with others. Why? Because everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Here's the thing. Verse eight. He who does not love does not know God for God is love. Not God has love, not God likes love, but actually God is love. So when the songwriter said what the world needs more now is love, more love. What they're actually saying is what the world needs now is God more God. They just don't know it. Uh, another thing that's interesting is Music Soul Child has a song that talks about love, so many people, blah, blah, blah. But actually, the song originally was God, but the music exists said a song about God won't sell. So he changed the word to love. But really, he was talking about God. So if you go back and look at the Music Soul Child song about love and you hear it as God, it makes even more sense. God is love. So people need love, and we offer them love, we're actually offering them God. All right, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's just that simple. So once again, it's on us. What's on us? It's on us to be the kingdom in the earth. But we're a kingdom that is not, uh, we are a kingdom that is advantageous, but we're not, uh, I couldn't think of a word I wanted, but here's the word adversarial. We're adversarial against the enemy, but we're advantageous to love others and sweep them into the kingdom. So there's going to be more that make it that don't because God says hell was created for the devil and his angels. That's really the only people that's supposed to be there. No human is supposed to go to hell. There will be some 
because there's some that are just evil and wicked and that allowed the devil to use them, like a Hitler, more than likely a Hitler in hell. But just the regular wino who has problems, why does he have to go to hell? Just because he's addicted, just because he's made mistakes. We should intervene and be the love agent that says, hey, I know your life has been all crazy, but we got the answer. We got the solution and we'll bring you in. And what happens if he comes in and becomes a part of us and then he dies a wino? He doesn't actually get totally delivered from his wine addiction. Then we offered him God and he could still make it to heaven, even though he didn't get it all right. We have been taught that look, if people don't get it right, they're going straight to hell. But no, that's not the point. The point is to rescue these people, give them the opportunity and a pathway to be with their creator. That's our job. That's our goal. So at the end of the day, it's on us. All right, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Dear gracious heavenly father. We thank you that it's on us. And because it is on us, even as this prayer graph, it says it's on us to bring transformation, revival, healing and forgiveness. And because it's on us, what we are doing is we're bettering ourselves as individuals. We're taking ownership of us, trying to do the best we can. What we can't do, we come to the collective church and we try to grow together to be what we need to be because iron sharpens iron. But together, it's on us to make our communities, our neighborhoods, our families, even our nation and this world a better place. We can do it with your help, through your love, and with this assignment and the legacy that was left for us through Bishop Clark and Bishop Mitchell. We can make an impact in this earth. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Having said that, I want to say God bless you. Have a great week. I always say this on Sunday, but since it's Wednesday, have the great rest of your week. And hopefully you go into a good, prosperous weekend. We love you dearly and uh, say just thank you for watching and uh, bless you. Tune in next week. See you. Sayonara.